to Exodus, Exodus chapter 35. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and you need to use one in the pew, Exodus 35 is on page 75 of that Bible. Just as a reminder for those of you who are uh, members of Gray Road, uh, we have just a brief, very brief members meeting just after the service today to handle one, uh, one brief item. Um, if you're a guest with us, we are glad that you're here. We're glad you're here to worship with us. That members meeting time is handled differently in different uh, congregations for us. Uh, only those who are members should, should remain for that. So we will have a brief uh, time right after we sing our last song for you to be able to make your way out. Uh, and again, very glad you're here. Just uh, that particular portion of, the, of our time is only for those who are members. Uh, also, I want to say thank you uh, as to those of you who have served uh, our nation as veterans. This week was Veterans Day. Thank you for your service. Thank you for the sacrifices that you have made. Thank you uh, for making so many things possible, probably in ways we don't even comprehend uh, because the blanket of freedom is so comfortable around us. Uh, And so thank you to each one of you who, who have served our nation. Exodus chapter 35, what I want to do, we're actually covering chapters 35 through the end of the book. So, I hope you brought lunch. Uh, So, uh, but what we're going to do is I want to read a brief part of chapter 35 at the beginning of our text, and then the last part of our text, the very end. So, Exodus 35, I'm going to read from verses 4 to 10, and then we'll turn to the end of chapter 40. Exodus 35, beginning in verse 4. This is what the Spirit says. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. Let every skilled craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. And then flip forward to chapter 40, and I'll begin with the last sentence of verse 33 and read to the end. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle day by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel 
throughout all their journeys. Let's pray together. O great God and Father, you have spoken these words by your Holy Spirit. And now we ask that you will send your Spirit to teach us so that we might hear and understand what you have said, so that our hearts might be encouraged and convicted and challenged and changed, and that our lives would be different. Our singing of praise would be different. Our thoughts of you would be different. The way we live even this week would be different. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Some uh, books and some movies finish without really finishing. The ending isn't really an ending. So maybe the villain that you thought was gone reappears or there's some kind of plot twist or addition to the plot just in the last couple of pages or in the last few minutes of the movie, letting you know this story isn't over. If you're a fan of the Marvel movies, then you know this well because they all have ended, most of them at least, in very much the same way, which is with some great sequence of action and fighting and all kinds of things, and then things settle down. Things come to a close, and the credits roll. And I made the mistake the first time I went of leaving. But the credits roll, and after the credits, there's typically a two to three minute scene in which something picks up right where it left off. And you know this story isn't over. Well, that's a bit like what you have at the end of Exodus. It's been really an epic journey to this point, from beginning to end. In the opening scenes, God's people are in misery. They're in slavery. They are oppressed and hopeless in Egypt, begging to be rescued. Moses tries to do something about it on his own, and he fails, and he ends up running away. But then God intervenes, finds Moses in the desert, and sends him back. And he takes God's words with him, words of freedom from slavery. And he takes God's power back with him, power seen in the plagues that come on Egypt. And then in that last plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn, the angel of death sweeps through the land while the blood of a lamb prescribed by God saves God's people from that death. God brings them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, to Mount Sinai. Thunder booms, lightning flashes, and God speaks. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. See, these rescued people will be God's people. They will be His holy people. Their allegiance will be His and His 
alone. So God gives His law through Moses to teach them what it will mean to live as His people, and God promises to dwell with them in His tabernacle. And the glory of this relationship with God last week we saw was threatened threatened because these people who had seen so much and experienced so much of God decide that they need to make an idol to represent God to themselves. And God is furious. God is prepared to wipe the slate clean and start over with Moses. But Moses intercedes, and God shows mercy. And because God shows them mercy, they won't be destroyed, though they deserve to be destroyed. And though they don't deserve it, God will still dwell with them in the tabernacle. And this morning, as we think about these last six chapters of Exodus, at how the story ends without quite ending, I want us to think about these chapters under two basic headings. God's people obey, and God's presence comes down. First, God's people obey. This is what most of the text shows us, is that these people obey. Building the tabernacle was a matter of obedience, you see. It wasn't just a neat religious idea. It wasn't something that was born out of a strategy session or a brainstorm, or, uh, you know, a congregational vote. Building the tabernacle is a matter of obedience to what God has said. Back in chapter 25, uh, God says in verses 8 and 9, "'Let them make, a, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture.'" so you shall make it. And it's interesting that in these chapters, 18 different times the text tells us that they obeyed what the Lord commanded. And there are three aspects of their obedience that I want to point out because they're actually aspects of, of, of obedience that should mark our obedience. First is that they obey sincerely. They obeyed sincerely. They didn't build the tabernacle begrudgingly as a mere matter of duty. They were sincere. And we see this in the way that the text will actually talk about their hearts. So, uh, the, the command is there in chapter 35, verse 5, that this uh, contribution needs to be made and then the building needs to happen. But then look down at chapter 35, verse 21. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. And then keep going down, go to verse 26. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. Then verse 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it 
as a free will offering to the Lord. And then about these craftsmen, chapter 36, verse 2. Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. Their hearts are willing. Their hearts are stirred. Their hearts are moved. They want to give. They want to work. They want to build. They want to obey. Their obedience is sincere. And friend, true obedience is not just action. It's not just huffing and puffing and putting away what I'd really like to be doing, but instead I guess I'll obey because God says I have to. That is not true obedience. If you begin to convince yourself that that's true obedience, let me ask you, did the Lord Jesus obey God that way? Huffing and puffing and saying, well, I don't really want to do any of this stuff, but I guess I will. No. It was for the joy that was set before him that he goes to the cross. Your obedience... My obedience is to be sincere obedience. To do what God says because in our hearts, more than anything else, we want to. We want to please God. We want to obey God. We want our lives to align with His revealed will in the Bible. That our obedience to God and His word should be sincere. So let me ask you, friend. Does obeying God seem like a downer to you? Does it just seem like something you have to do but you don't really want to do? Like obedience is something that keeps you from doing something that you really want to do? Maybe you're already in a pattern of doing what you really want to do and not obeying and your heart doesn't want to do anything else. But you know, you kind of go through the motions on some things. You know, you don't really want to forgive those family members, but you'll go through the motions and make plans for Thanksgiving. Because that's what you're supposed to do. Because I'm here to love you. Friend, that ain't love. It's not the way God loved you. Do you obey sincerely? God doesn't just want your mouth and your hands. He wants your heart. But they don't just obey sincerely. They also obey specifically. God gives specific instructions about materials to collect and about items to make and and how to construct the tabernacle and where the things are supposed to go. And from chapter 36, verse 8, all the way to the end of chapter 39, you can read the account of their specific obedience. First, making the tabernacle in its interior, the actual tent, the interior with the ark and with the lampstand and and with the table, with the bread of the presence and with the, the altar of incense, and then the courtyard with the bronze basin for washing and the bronze altar for making sacrifices and all of the curtains that go around. 
And then the priest's garments. In fact, if you just look in chapter 39 uh, um, at the way these paragraphs go, the first seven paragraphs, at least in the ESV, end in the same way. As the Lord had commanded Moses. 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 It is, it is the beautiful, beautiful refrain of their obedience. It is as the Lord commanded Moses. At every point, what God specifically says, they specifically do. They don't guess. They don't make it up. They don't call an audible. They do what he says to do. They build to his specifications. And do you know how your life is meant to be built? To his specifications. So, husbands, the Bible tells us, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Meaning, you are not at liberty to determine how to love your wife or what love is for that matter. You are to specifically obey by loving her as Christ loved the church. He is the pattern of love. He is the measure of love. And we are to specifically obey that command. Also in Ephesians 5, verse 11, Paul writes that we are to take no part in the unfruitful deeds, the unfruitful works of darkness. And do you know what no part means? It means no part. It means that you don't mess around with darkness. You don't brush it off and think it's no big deal because, hey, I can handle darkness. You don't laugh at it. No part. Well, I mean, I mostly take no part. Well, is that what Paul says? I usually take no part. But is that what God says? Friends, there is no general obedience to the Bible. You don't generally obey. Just like you don't generally sin. We sin in very specific ways and we are to obey God specifically. If we don't obey God specifically, we're not obeying God at all. If, if a parent were to tell a child, I need you to go into your room and I need you to clean it up. I need you to pick up the trash off the floor. I need you to put away the laundry. I'd like you to make your bed and I'd like you to uh, use some window cleaner on the window. And they go in and they move the things around to where the floor is mostly walkable. And then they come out and they say, I, I obeyed. Well, did you put away the laundry? Well, no, but I generally obeyed. Well, did you throw away the trash? No, but it's not in the way anymore. Did you make your bed? Well, no, I threw a blanket on it. 
Did, did you actually use the cleaner on the window? No, I just spit on it. I just figured that would be, you know, wetness enough, and I wiped it around. Now, let me ask you, does the parent feel good in their heart and think, ah, oh, what an obedient child I have? <laughs> Not at all. How much more when God says X and Y and Z? Are we not to do things other than X and Y and Z? We're to obey God specifically. So don't just hear God's words and, you know, think they're interesting, think they're convicting, then leave them. Friends, the more that you do that, the more that you hear God's words and then choose not to obey them, can I tell you what will happen? Your heart will grow harder and harder and harder toward the Lord. And you'll wonder why your heart is so cold toward the Lord. What happened? Where has God gone? Why do I not sense His presence? Why do I not feel close to Him? Why do I feel so distant? Well, you know, one of the places that you ought to look is to your obedience or lack thereof. They obey specifically. So, sincerely, specifically, and thirdly, they obey fully. Fully. This is really notable in uh, the collection that they take up. Look at chapter 36. Uh, this is after uh, Bezalel and Oaliab and the craftsmen have been called up. Uh, beginning in verse 3, they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, uh, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work than, that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution and for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. God calls them to give, and what do they do? They give, and they give, and they give, and they give until it's just overwhelming and Moses has to stop them. Have you ever had that happen in a church? Has the pastor ever stood up, you know, or the, the finance deacon stand up or whatever and just said, hey, uh, could you guys cut it out? Way too much giving going on in here. But that's what's happening. They have far more than they need. It's what's been glorious about our offering of praise the last couple of years, isn't it? We had all the material and more. These folks obey God fully. And their, their full obedience is noted elsewhere. If you look in chapter 39, uh, look at verse 32. The Bible reads, Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. 
And then down in verse 42 and 43, same chapter. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord commanded them, so they had done it. And then when it came to the consecration of the temple, in, uh, sorry, the tabernacle in chapter 40, verse 16, this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. Did you hear all the alls? They, they didn't just do some of it. They didn't just do part of it. They didn't just build a shell and say, hey, we'll fill it in later. No, they did all of it. It got me to thinking, how much of God's word do we want to obey? Nobody's saying that you can be perfect in this life, but some people take that reality that you will not be perfect in your obedience in this life, and they just basically mean, they just take it and they twist it to mean, I don't have to worry about obedience in this life. I mean, come on, Jesus obeyed in my place, and he died on the cross, and all his righteousness is credited to me, so I don't have to worry about obedience at all. Well, is that how the apostles write the New Testament letters? Do they say, hey guys, here's what Jesus did, don't you even worry about a life of obedience? No, they do not. No, they do not. In fact, they call them to complete consecration and call us to complete consecration to the Lord, full obedience, which brings me back to my question. How much do you want to obey God's word? How much of it would you like to obey? How much do you seek to obey God's word? Because that's a whole different question, isn't it? Because you can amen the first one in an auditorium like this with a pastor you looking dead in the eyes. This last week, how much did you seek to obey the Lord? In your interaction with your husband or your wife this week, how much did you seek to obey the Lord? In your pattern of behavior at work this week, how much did you seek to obey the Lord? In your friendships this week, how much did you seek to obey the Lord? In your private surfing on the internet, how much did you seek to obey the Lord? When that thing went wrong this week and you responded to it, was your main concern that you obey the Lord? Do you see how penetrating that is? It penetrates my heart. It wrestles me to the ground. These people obey fully in this matter. You know, we often sing a hymn whose last line is, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what God wants. He wants all. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Now, if we had just started reading in verse 35, we might not be as surprised, but if you read everything up till now, wouldn't you be a bit surprised by these folks? 
Back in chapter 32, they were making an idol. These are the same people that, that barked out at Aaron, hey, make us an idol so we can, that, that it'll lead us. It's, give us something to worship here. These are the same people. And their whole tune has changed. Now they're obedient. They're sincerely obedient. They're specifically obedient. They're fully obedient. Why are they obedient? Well, if I were to venture a guess, I'd say this. The mercy of God changed everything. The mercy of God that we saw them receive last week changed everything. God's mercy tends to reorient your life. And we know that as Christians, don't we? We know it. God has shown us mercy. God has saved us. And everything changes, but it's on actually a much grander scale because He doesn't just move our hearts. He doesn't just stir our hearts. He's changed our hearts. He's given us new hearts so that we respond to Him in faith, so that we want to obey, so that we want to please Him. That's, that's what the heart of the Christian does. And friend, if, if that's not where your heart is, that you, no, then no matter how much you know about Jesus and how much you know about the Bible and how much theology you can teach and how many verses you posted on your social media account, and no matter how much you shake your head at the sin of the world, and no matter how loudly you sing, how much you raise your hands, how much you feel moved in a service, if you don't care to obey God, then you're not a Christian. If obedience means nothing to you, How could the Savior who commands it mean anything to you? God's people obey. You see, we speak of being a Christian as following Jesus. Well, what was the walk of Jesus? It was a walk of obedience, wasn't it? Surely a walk we cannot achieve on our own. Surely a walk we cannot achieve in this life. Yet still, it is a walk of obedience, isn't it? Do you care to follow Jesus? Do you think following Jesus is a bit like Jesus is leading the parade and he's just tossing out candy and you're just picking it up? You're just getting all the benefit doing nothing? Well, in some ways, that's the case. But following Jesus is not just about receiving from him. It is following him. He's a man of suffering, so we will suffer. He was a servant, so we will serve. He was obedient, so we will obey. God's people obey. And in these chapters, at the end of this book, when God's people obey, something amazing, truly awesome happens. God's presence comes down. Chapter 40, 
the end of verse 33 and verse 34. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The work is finished, and the Lord arrives. And he fills the tabernacle with his presence. And we see some important realities just in this last, uh, just this last paragraph. The first is that God is near. The same glory that had been on the mountain is now in their midst. It's come to camp with them. He's come and pitched his tent and made his dwelling with them. And they can see it. They see it in the cloud. They see it in the fire. Can you just imagine a father teaching his children? Right? Come here, children. Let me recount for you the story. God, God rescued us from slavery. He freed us from Egypt, from certain death, and he's going to take us to a wonderful land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And do you know, children, he's with us now. And then the father points toward the tabernacle. You see that? God told Moses, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Do you see that cloud? Do you remember the fire you saw last night? God is with us. God is leading us. He'll get us there. We will make it to our new home. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, wouldn't that be nice if that were the case today? If we just had a bit of fire in here or cloud or something, some kind of proof of God's presence. Well, dear Christian, do you know you have something better than a cloud? You have something better than fire. You have something better than Israel ever had. Because today, for God's people, God does not simply dwell among us. He dwells in us. His Spirit dwells in us, guides us, teaches us, encourages us, convicts us, keep us. The, the Holy Spirit of God is God's seal and guarantee that He will keep His promise and bring us home to heaven. Ephesians 1, Paul writes that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And the evidence of the Spirit isn't a cloud. It's not something outside of you. It's not something you look for in a gathering like this. We're not looking for holy hunches or special feelings or anything like that. Do you know what the evidence of the Holy Spirit is in your life? It's what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These kinds of things, the work of the Spirit in your life makes you more like Christ who sent that Spirit. That's how you know God is near. Because He's working in you. 
He's growing you in entrusting yourself to him who judges justly as you walk through a life of pain and suffering. So many people want evidence of God in the midst of their suffering. Do you know what it you know where it often is? It's in the feeble hand that is clinging as much as it can to God when they cannot feel him. It is in the one who refuses to let their disease be all about them and they continue to serve and love others. It is in the wife whose husband is not loving her as Christ loved the church and yet she beams with glorious obedience as she loves and serves him as she treats him as more important than herself. And likewise, it's in the husband whose wife has no interest in living a godly life in the home, and yet he continues to love her as Christ loved the church. He continues to sacrifice himself for her, pour his life out for her. Stop looking. You know what's miraculous? You know what's genuinely miraculous? People want to see the miraculous in your life? Find someone who loves those who hate them. There's the miraculous, isn't it? Find the one who trusts God when they have no feeling and, no, and all of their circumstances say, this thing is chaos. That's how you will know God is near. Because who do you think gives you the strength to cling to him when you don't know what's going to happen? He does. The next thing we see in this last paragraph is that God is unapproachable. <laughs> God is near. God is unapproachable. Isn't that something? Remember, we've talked about this. He is both transcendent and he is imminent. He is both separate and superior, and he is near and close. God is unapproachable. Look at verse 35 here. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's not just that the people can't go in. Moses himself can't go in. God's glory isn't just filling the temple tabernacle. It is protecting the tabernacle. From anybody just walking in. You can't just wander into God's presence. But, but the whole point was that God was going to dwell with them and be their God and they would be his people. How are they supposed to commune with him if they can't even go in the tent? Actually, the answer lies in the very first thing you would bump into as you walk into the courtyard of the tabernacle. The key is the bronze altar. You see, the altar is actually the front door into God's presence. And these people can only have relationship with God through sacrifice, through atonement. That's why I said the story ends without really ending. Because if, I don't know, my page turns to go to Leviticus chapter 1. But if you just look at the very next book, the first two verses... The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd of your own flock. 
Very literally, in Hebrew, the is not the first word in Leviticus. And is the first word in Leviticus. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, and then he unfolds the sacrificial system. In other words, the story that has concluded in Exodus is just picking right up and going on in Leviticus. It keeps going. God is unapproachable, but God will tell them how they can approach. They need atonement. And friend, the only way we can be in relationship with God is through atonement. On the basis of atonement, atonement we can't make. Atoning for your sins doesn't mean you try to outdo your bad stuff with more good stuff. That's what a lot of people in this life think atoning for their sin is. I'm really going to make it up to you. That's not the case at all. The atonement that we need is the sacrifice. And God has provided one in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, for every single human being, God is truly unapproachable in a relationship until the atonement of Christ is applied to their lives. Until you trust in what He has done for you, only then is the unapproachable God made approachable. And so here's my question, friend. Aren't you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done for you? Are you convinced, beyond convinced, that His atonement is the only way that you are right with God? Will you trust in Him? Stop toying around with Him and trust Him. The last thing that we see here is that God will stay with them. God will stay with them. In verses 36 to 38, we have this picture of what's going to happen in the journeys. That when the cloud picks up, they pick up. That when the cloud stays, they stay. Verse 38, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So God has rescued them from slavery, brought them out of Egypt, brought them here, and he will lead them through the wilderness. He will lead them through suffering. He will lead them when they sin. He will lead them when they're opposed. He will lead them when there's dissension in the ranks. He will lead them even though there will be unbelief. Through it all, he will not leave them and he will not forsake them. You see, twas grace that brought them safe thus far. And grace will lead them home. What a book! What a story! I mean, at the beginning, God was seemingly absent. And in the end, God is clearly present. In the beginning, Pharaoh, the evil king of Egypt, dwelt in their midst. And in the end, Yahweh, the benevolent king of the universe, dwells in their midst. 
At the beginning, the dark cloud of oppression hung over Israel. In the end, God's bright cloud of glory hangs. At the beginning, they were trapped in slavery. In the end, they've been set free. At the beginning, hopelessness was on every horizon. But in the end, the hope of the promised land and all of its blessings fills the horizon before them. It is an amazing book, an amazing story. But if you're a Christian, Exodus is not just Israel's story. It is yours. God has rescued us from the oppression and darkness of sin. He brought us out, set us free, rescued us from hopelessness, and he has given us hope, the hope of eternal life, the hope of heaven. And he's done it all by his Son, our Savior, our Mediator, our High Priest, Jesus Christ. You see, the story of Exodus is actually swallowed up in the story of the whole Bible, a story that is ultimately about Jesus So Jesus is the greater Moses who is sent by God to rescue his enslaved people. Jesus is the greater Passover lamb whose blood covers and saves all who believe. Jesus is the greater miracle worker who parts the sea of death and judgment so that we can walk through without being touched. Jesus is the greater manna from heaven, the bread of life that satisfies the hungry soul. Jesus is the greater prophet who teaches us God's law to its fullest extent, to the heart. Jesus is the greater high priest who need not make atonement for his own sin because he's sinless, but he makes atonement for ours. Jesus is the greater intercessor who prays for his sinful, foolish people. Jesus is the embodiment of the tabernacle. He is God pitching his tent with us with a lamp that never goes out and a table that's always set and a veil that is torn so access is never denied. Jesus is the cloud and the fire of the glory of God come to earth. Hebrews 1 says he is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus fills his people with God's presence as the glory filled the tabernacle. His spirit dwells in us both individually and corporately to lead us and to guide us in the wilderness of life. And God's purpose to save us To lead us through this wilderness and bring us home cannot be thwarted. You read the book of Exodus, what God sets out to do in the beginning, He does in the end, and nothing will stop Him. Sin will not stop Him. Suffering will not stop Him. Cancer will not stop him. World leaders will not stop him. The enemies of the gospel will not stop him. The devil will not stop him. And death will not stop him. Nothing can thwart God's purposes. He will not leave us and he will not forsake us until we reach the promised land. Our days in this world 
are full of trouble and full of suffering and full of sin, our own and the sin of others against us. They are full of heartache. They are days that we live as strangers, that we walk as pilgrims on the narrow way of following Jesus. But Jesus has said, He will deliver all those who trust in Him safely to the golden shore of heaven. That is our hope in all of life. And that is the hope that ought to fill us in the last pages of the book of Exodus. Why? Because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, our God, how magnificent you are. How faithful you are, how glorious you are. We thank you that your spirit caused your servant Moses to write down these words for us that we might see you and know you. And through these historical events and your work in them, see the Savior to whom they point. How quickly we would be lost if making it to the end were up to us. We are thankful for your promise that you will complete the work that you've begun. That you will not leave us or forsake us until we reach that golden shore. And we pray this and praise you in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing together. Normally I would move to the back of the auditorium during the song. I will not, but once we finish, uh, I will briefly pray, and then we will uh, be dismissed. If you're not a member, if you are, just stay around, okay? So let's sing together.